Have you ever realized that many individuals will read the Bible with uh, little to no emotional or mental effect? It does nothing for them. But whenever the word is uh, properly preached, very quickly they can become angry or offended. Might have happened to you at times. I, I think I can say that it's happened to me. And I would say that one of the reasons for that happening is because, well, one, one way is uh, they're not reading it actually with an open heart to understand. So at that moment, whatever they're reading doesn't necessarily apply to them, so therefore it has no effect. It's not going to strum their hearts. It's not going to have the tendency to make them upset or angry. But as I said, whenever it is preached properly, then it is, for lack of better words, it's in your face, and it has the tendency to uh, bring people to an offense or to become angry. Now, again, the key word was properly preached. This is the word of God, right? And there's many times individuals have actually walked out during that and they'll leave because they don't want to hear it. It's kind of like a, like a loan. When an individual receives a, a loan, right? It's exciting. $1,000, $2,000, $3,000. The greater excitement is it's a, it's a personal pleasure. I'm, I'm getting a loan and the loan officer gives them a contract and Okay, they kind of skim through the contract, but, but they really don't bring into it this understanding. They're not trying to look into it any deeper until a month goes by and they don't pay their payment. And the loan collector calls and says, now you have a late charge. And not only that, you also have interest fees. So by the end of your note, you're going to have to pay a lot more. Now the individual is pretty angry, right? But they're angry because now reality has hit. And they had the opportunity to read the contract, so they would have known the consequences. But the fact is, they didn't read it with any understanding. That's how many individuals approach the Bible. And I would say that as believers, we are expected to be people of the book, to, to study the book and and to read the book and to become familiar with the book and the concepts that God has set before us. And it's not with our personal interest in mind, right? It's not us, but, but it's God in the center. And, and, and how are, is this going to uh, glorify Him? And a lot of times that glorification is going to mean uh, our humiliation or being made less of. And, and well... I would be in the same group to say that doesn't always feel good. That's not always the, the best thing, right? And in, in the mix of all that, it, it can become very uh, emotional-based. And then our emotions can mislead us. So if we don't feel a certain way, then we feel like we're not right with God or God is not with us or he doesn't hear us. And that's just actually a lie because we know uh, the truth of the word of God, that he is always with us as believers. And emotions, while they can be good, they're always meant to be a caboose to our train of faith, but never the engine. The engine has to be what we know that the word of God says. We're going to start this journey through the epistle of James. 
we finished our series of Come Let Us Reason, and I sought after wisdom, what's the next book to go through, and what better book to go through than the epistle of James, which has a lot of wisdom, it has a lot of insight, and I think that it is going to be something that is beneficial for us in our lives when we start to realize this epistle of James and we start to see that, that it's, not a, it's not a book or a, or a letter that has to do so much with theories or ideas. It's not much about doctrine as far as the mind is concerned, but what it has to do is it's a practical book. And by practical, what it means is that uh, it's concerned with the actual doing of something. The physicality of it. That's what the book of James is. It strongly focuses on the believer's integrity and character in the Lord. Which, right off the bat right there, then we're going to know that if we take our faith seriously, it's, it's going to be challenging. If we have an open heart and we say, okay, God, speak to uh, my heart and show me uh, what is here set before me. And it's going to challenge the outward practices that come from a said inward faith. What we have inside is going to show on the outside. Let me read verse 1 and we'll pray. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Father, we stand before the well of the water of your word, seeking after a drink, a drink after the water that will have us not thirsting any longer. And if there is a thirst, Father, it will be only for more of what you have to give to us. Father, help us to approach it this morning with open hearts and open ears. Teach us and lead us and guide us that we may not be misled by our emotions, but that we would be led by your spirit and by the truth of your word. Father, we ask you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, The epistle of James is is going to be a challenging epistle. And over the years, I've I've listened to many different preachers. Uh, And there is many preachers that I listen to that every time I listen to them, it's like music to my ears. Because the word of God that they produce and they preach, it's almost like they are just pulling truth out of my heart and it's like they're just saying words that couldn't be said any better and and it produces a joy and there's other preachers who like to shout there's other preachers who are a little more quiet there's preachers who are going to pace up and forth through the front and others that stay put but but regardless that technique really has nothing to do with the power that's contained in the word of god As a matter of fact, it doesn't take any minister to shout at the top of his lungs. 
Because a minister can whisper the word of God, but yet it'll come forth as loud as the loud preacher, if not louder. And that's the first understanding that we know when we come to the word of God. Because, again, many times our emotions will say, well, you know, they weren't really, they didn't have the umph. And that umph will be mistaken for what we would call the anointing. But no, the anointing is greater than that. The anointing is actually understanding this word and being able to put it into application. The anointing of God is the Holy Spirit that we have dwelling within us as believers. That's the anointing. Now, that anointing is going to empower us to not only understand this word, but to put it into application, to be challenged by it. Because there's never one sermon that's really going to be life-changing. We can't live our Christian life off of one sermon. And we can't read our Christian life off of reading the Bible for just a short amount of time and expect that it's going to work. It's a constant, right? Uh, we, that's why individuals come to a ministry to listen to the preaching of the Word of God. And then you, you add to it the reading of the Word of God. You do cross-referencing. And what it is, as the apostles would say, a reminder constantly. Because once we've come to this side, we have the tendency to kind of forget about this over here. And through that reminder, it's like, oh, I forgot. I, I need to also put this into application. So it's a, it's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It would be just as foolish as to say that anyone who cares about their health and they work out, that just going to the gym one time is going to make them nice and cut and lean. And you, the Coke bottle figure, it's not going to happen. It would be nice, right? But it's not going to happen. Well, how much more so when it comes to uh, the things of God? And James is very challenging, as I said earlier in this book. A, a few verses down in verse 8 of chapter 1, he goes on to say that uh, the individual who is lacking wisdom, ask God for wisdom. But don't doubt, don't, uh, doubt in your mind, because the individual who doubts, he is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. So way to go, James. You're already starting off uh, calling people names, right? But that's exactly what he's saying. You're an unstable individual and you are double-minded if you doubt in your mind when you have asked God for wisdom. You go down to verse 22 in chapter 1, and then he goes on to say to be doers of the word and not just hearers, because if you do that, then you're only deceiving yourself. I mean, it might feel good to you, and you think you're right with God, but you're really not. So therefore, he's talking about this faith that we have. We need to put it into application. You go further, he calls individuals foolish. He says, foolish man, faith without works is dead. So you show me your faith without works, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. As he goes deeper in the letter, in chapter 4, he addresses and says, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. And you start to see this, this is being a little bold here, right? And in the last chapter, he's speaking to the rich people, the greedy people, the ones who oppress, and he says, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. 
So he's doing a lot of admonishing. And what we start to realize pretty quickly in the epistle of James is that there's not very many suggestions, but they all come in the form of uh, commands. It's, it's an imperative. Ask God for wisdom. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. Be doers of the word. It's an imperative. He's not suggesting for you to do that. As a matter of fact, when God calls us to come to him, it's a command. The Greek word kaleo, it means to come. It's not, uh, well, if you feel like it or, or, or if you want to think about it. No, it's a command for us to come. So James is going to address the testing of our faith, the proving of our faith, and this through trials, through temptations. He's going to address the sin of partiality or favoritism. He's going to speak about the tongue, wisdom, humility, pride. And he's also going to address patience and persevering, continuing, abiding in Christ. Well, right off the bat, if you're paying attention, you have to kind of think, what, what would cause such an individual to have this kind of boldness and stability? What allows him to speak so firmly, so positively, so confidently. Now, first, this James is not to be confused with the few James that there is in Scripture. There, there is several James, uh, but this James here we see in uh, the, the book of Matthew. It shows that he is the brother of Jesus Christ. And if you pay attention already to what we read in verse 1, we see that he doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Christ, but he introduces himself as the bondservant of the Lord God and of, the, of Jesus Christ. We'll address the bondservant here coming up, but he's a brother of Jesus, okay? Now, uh, many individuals start to say, okay, he was related this way. It, was a, it, was a, a, it wasn't Mary's son. It was Joseph's son from a prior marriage. And that's usually the, the Catholic view on it because, you know, they hold Mary as immaculate and a virgin to the very end. But regardless, he is the brother of Christ. And we see in the Gospel of John that not only James, but the other brothers of Jesus, they didn't believe in him. They actually kind of mocked him, and, and they, they didn't have really a faith in him. And so you kind of have to wonder, well, you know, your own brothers don't believe in you. But yet that still didn't stop Jesus from what he had to do. And as you read on, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says that Christ appeared, he made a special appearance to James, his brother. And then you have to wonder, why would there be a special appearance to him? It says that he appeared to over 500, but he had this one particular appearance to just James. And, and you almost have to wonder, did he give him some kind of uh, special revelation? Or, or, or did he ask him, now do you believe in me? Uh, what is it? But nevertheless, he had this special revelation and in the book of Galatians, when you read about Paul, when he says, I, when, when I met God, I had this encounter, I didn't immediately go uh, confer with the Jews. I didn't immediately go preach, but what I did is I went to Mount Sinai for three years. And when he was done, 
Then he says he went back to Jerusalem, of whom he sought after Peter and James. But he didn't see none of the other apostles. So you start to see immediately, now you're starting to see that James is appearing to be somebody. Because Paul went to Peter and to James. And then when you read Acts in chapter 15 and chapter 21, now you're starting to see even more clearly that James is definitely a leader in the church. He is uh, definitely, and in Galatians chapter 2, it's clearly said that he was a pillar in the church. What does that mean? He strongly supported the church. He was definitely somebody. This is James. This is the brother of Jesus. Well, over time, James, the brother of Jesus, began to be known as James the Just because of his outstanding virtue. That's how you know him. Uh, there is a James the Great and a James the Less. This James, the brother of Jesus, is James the Just. He was a, a deeply dedicated figure. Again, it's, it, this may not be coming together for you, but as you, as you start to ponder on this, and, and I would say if we're going to be in the, in, in the epistle of James for a good while, read it continually. It's okay. Read it continually, become familiar with it, and you're going to see that he's a deeply dedicated figure, and he's known for obvious piety or holiness. He's set apart unto God and for his wise and cautious leadership. If you read uh, the works of a Jewish historian named Josephus, Josephus quotes him as being uh, such a wonderful person and being celebrated by others because of his righteousness. He was a likable guy. And if you continue to read, uh, Josephus also discusses the end of the life of James. The Bible doesn't tell us the end of his life, but Josephus does. And he says that uh, a Sanhedrin of judges convicted him of wrongdoing and they sentenced him to death. This is James, the brother of Jesus. How did they kill him? Well, they had him thrown off from the pinnacle or the peak of the temple. And when he fell to the ground, he didn't actually die. So they finished him off by stoning him to death. This is James, the brother of Jesus. His loyalty to the word of God was not only in word, but shouted louder with an action. As he said, be a doer of the word and not only a hearer deceiving yourself. Because deception is something else. Being a hearer, being an understander, it can make people feel really good. But they'll stop short of the doing. And that's really just a deception because it doesn't matter how much we know. It doesn't matter how much we understand. But without the application of doing, it still proves us as uh, not understanding or being rebellious, right? Which is as the sin of witchcraft, which scripture would say. And then you just have to begin to, to put things together at this point. But back to his introduction and I would say that it must not be overlooked. 
It must not, because think of any of us. Let's say that we were related to Jesus. I'd probably want to have the tendency to say, Adam Luhan, the brother of Jesus Christ. And raise my collar up and say, yeah, that's me. That was my brother, right? But he says, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not his brother. And I would say that this demonstrates that James was, he wasn't concerned with the earthly affiliation to Jesus. That's not what makes me who I am. My earthly affiliation, he is my brother. But rather, it was the heavenly affiliation in the fact that they shared the same father who is God. The privilege and status must never be greater than the priority of identity. And we live in a society where status is sought after, whether it is through preachers or now your self-proclaimed apostles or prophets. And uh, you can even see individuals with businesses and they'll conveniently make sure to put underneath there that they are the owners of this said business. I've never really personally understood that because I didn't like that when I had my business. I'll just put my name and you don't need to know necessarily what I do, but it's highly sought after to be a CEO or to be an executive. And, and we want people to know who we are, or to be a doctor, it's an offense to not refer to someone with the doctor before their name. And there's people with uh, theological doctorate degrees that they get offended. You need to call me doctor before anything else. And you start to see that this is the privilege of status. I want to be somebody. But for James, his identity was more important. I'm a bondservant. That's who I am. And a bondservant is not the greatest of titles if you really uh, think about it according to the world. A bondservant. The Greek word is doulos. And if you want to get a little more critical, then you would see it as it is a bond slave or just to get main and plain, slave. It's a slave. It's through the idea of being bound to someone or something. Now the bond servant, of course, uh, the believer in Christ, we're, we're bound to Christ. We're bound in this betrothal. And remember, a betrothal was, it was a legal binding contract. You're, bind, you're bound to this now, and the only way to break it would be to actually get a divorce. So we're bound to Christ. Now, a lot of individuals are going to quickly embrace, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God, I'm a child of God, because there's benefits that come along with that that we like. We're heirs to the throne, and, and of course, we are. But what about when it comes to slave? Would we put on that identity so quickly and say, I am a slave of Christ? doesn't necessarily come with uh, the earthly perks that we would think of, but it comes with eternal perks, which is uh, eternity in heaven. A bondservant is devoted to uh, another individual regardless of one's interests. 
It doesn't matter what I feel. I'm going to be devoted to uh, my master. And so it is clearly being in service to someone else. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, uh, the, the Apostle Paul says, Now having been set free from sin and having become what? Slaves of God. It's the Greek word doulos. You have your fruit to what? Holiness. This is what James was doing. He had the fruit of holiness and in the end, what? Everlasting life. That's the end result. That's what we're all in this for. Now, does God bless us during our journey here on this earth? Absolutely. More than we can even think or imagine, God does some wondrous things. But we're all in this for one thing. What? That's eternity in heaven. To stand before this glorious king who's going to wear a crown, not of thorns, but of many colors and of gold with rubies. That's, or it should be, every believer's desire. Now, if it's not then you may not fully understand the gospel. In chapter 6 of Romans, uh, when Paul, before he said this, he's saying that obedience is given only to the one to who we are a slave of. So in other words, you're going to obey whichever is your master. So in other words, if God is your master, you're going to obey him. But if Satan is your master, you're going to obey him and you're going to be a slave to sin. There's no in between. Somebody might say, well, I, I, I'd rather, I'm, I'm a slave to my boss. Well, then you're still a slave to Satan. The main slave that we are to is a slave to Christ. And I would hope that we would be able to see it in a, in a biblical way to be able to embrace it. Because it's not until we understand the fact that we are slaves of Christ that we know that we are truly grafted into Christ. Now, of course, he says, you individuals, you were a slave to sin at one point. And as a matter of fact, now that we have been freed, we're ashamed of that sin. We can look back and the things that we did and the, the things that we were uh, affiliated with, and it's actually a shame to even think about them, let alone talk about them. I mean, I don't know about uh, you individuals, but I know there's some things that I did that I would never even share in my testimony because I'm so ashamed of them. But regardless, that's been taken away, right? Christ has taken our shame, our shame away. But yes, because we're not a slave to that anymore. And they produced only the fruit of death. Because the wages of sin is death. But now we have brought to a different fruit. And that is the fruit of holiness while we're here on this earth. And then it results in everlasting life. This is, the, this is James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He is set apart unto holiness. And he's looking unto everlasting life. Now, this bond slave, right? Because again, slave, it just still might not taste good. I, I don't know about this slave stuff because uh, the Bible says that uh, he who is free is free indeed. And where the Lord is, uh, there is liberty. So how am I going to be a slave to Christ? Well, it's by choice. Because we already know the goodness of God and, and God is not going to just uh, command us and, and he's not like us, right? They go, go bring me a glass of water. Take off my shoes. 
Well, that's not the kind of slave we're talking about. But it's the, it's the kind of slave that we sign up for in service and say, uh, uh, yes, Lord, uh, you send me and I'll go. In Exodus chapter 21, we see an example of what we're talking about. In Exodus chapter 21, it gives us the law concerning bond slaves. Slaves. Now, the Bible catches a lot of slack from unbelievers today because they say the Bible, uh, it, it, it condones and it promotes slavery. What kind of a God is that? Well, when you start to understand what it's talking about and you put it all into its proper context, you start to see that, no, this is, this is righteous. But in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 21, it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. Well, many times people were indebted for whatever reason. I owe you money. So you go and say, I need my money. Well, I don't have the money to pay you back. I don't know what to do. Okay, then you can come work it off for me. And this is the process. So as you're working it off, when you finish paying your debt, then you're done and you are free to go. But while you're paying that debt off, uh, you belong to them to do as you need to do to fulfill the debt that you owe. Well, in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 21, it says, But if the servant, okay, the slave, the bond servant, plainly says, this means if he absolutely feels this in his heart. He says, I love my master. I will not go out free. Of course, it adds in there my wife and my children because he acquires those while he's there. But I love my master. I will not go out free. I don't want to go. Can you imagine that? A slave that says, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him for six months. No, he shall serve him forever. And that's a choice that that slave made. I'm going to serve him forever. Why? Because he treats me well. He feeds me. He provides for me. That I don't mind doing whatever I have to do for him. He takes care of me. I want to serve him forever. So therefore, take me to the doorpost. Pierce my ear with this all. And it means that I am here by choice. So the slave of Christ is the slave of Christ by choice. I choose to be his slave. And that he would be my master. But to be a bond slave, this speaks of explicitly of service and occupation. I've said before that when we come to Christ, we have obtained a kind of employment. And now we're employed by Christ. So it means to do, to do something. Not for our salvation, but because we are saved and we're being used by Christ. When you look at the priests of the Old Testament, you look at the prophets, they were slaves, servants of the Lord. For his service. And that's exactly what they did. They put away their comfort uh, priority 
and they did what God asked for them, right? We can go and look at all the prophets and everything that they endured. Ezekiel having to lay on his side for a certain amount of time without clothes on and then having to cook his food on a pile of dung. He lost his wife and the Lord said, you're not even going to weep for her because he was trying to make an example. They endured these things. They were treated spitefully. Of course, at the very end, just like James, they were killed. They were martyred. When you look at the priest, same thing, the service that they, that they did, and they, you know, they always had to carry the ark, they had to tend to the temple and make sure the, candle, the candles were always lit, the candlesticks, and it was a service unto the Lord. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, right before it speaks of these bond slaves, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I was a slave to Egypt, but I am the one who set you free. So the same stands for every believer. You and me, anyone who's in Christ, we have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price. And so there's a transfer of ownership. And it's from a slave to sin, or from a slave of sin, or the world, to a slave of what? A slave of Christ. If we recall in the Gospels, Jesus clearly saying in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve or be a slave of, the Greek word douleo, so it is the doulos in action, no one can serve or be a slave of two masters. Why? He's going to hate one. And love the other or vice versa. There's only two different kinds of masters again. It's either uh, the father of lies or the father of the truth. It's either God or Satan. You can't serve them both. Uh, People love money. People are materialistic. You're loving Satan. People love anything else other than Christ. You love the word of God. You love the things of God. You love anything that pertains to heaven. Then you love God. He is your master. But an individual, any given individual, can only serve one of those two. Now you might say, I, I, don't, I don't, or any individual might say, I don't, I don't hate God. I don't hate him. Well, remember, uh, the word maseo doesn't necessarily mean to, to hate with the hatred that we know, but what it means is that you love the other one more and that's how hate is going to come across. Again, the example, if at the end of the day you get home and you're tired, you really want to read your Bible, but you also really want to see the next episode of whatever thing is happening and you choose to watch the episode, then the biblical example is you hated your Bible at that moment. Now, you're not going to admit it, but that's the picture. Whatever you choose, that's what you love. What you don't choose, you might say, well, I prefer this one. Well, it's a demonstration of the biblical definition of hating something, loving it less. We see that Moses was a slave servant of the Lord. He was absolutely a prophet. But when we read the story of Moses, we clearly see that Moses forsook Egypt. He had privilege there. He denied being called uh, uh, the, the son of the Pharaoh. 
But he said, I'd rather just go into the wilderness and I would rather serve God. He let go of all the privileges he had to be in the mansion rather than to be with his people. And he goes to the wilderness and God calls him with the burning bush. And, and Moses says, well, how, how are they going to know that you sent me? And I don't even know how to speak. And God says, it doesn't matter. I'll give you the words. You go. Moses became a servant regardless of what was going to come after him. He was going to go to Pharaoh. Uh, God told him, Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. He's not going to let you go. But don't let that stop you. You continue to go and listen to me. So he he denied his comfort in order to fulfill the service for God, and he continued to go back. Now, you imagine, you imagine going to minister to someone who's in need of the gospel, and you minister to them, and they deny you. Are you going to be so easy to go back the next day again if the Lord told you to go back? And then you go again, and they deny you again. Are you still going to want to go back? But yet Moses continued to go. And yes, God was, was showing through signs and miracles and wonders. But nevertheless, Moses continued to go. God fulfilled, uh, took him through the Red Sea, and the time of the wilderness wandering. Imagine how difficult it was for this man, Moses, to lead these people of unbelief throughout the wilderness journey that they were so uh, stiff-necked, as the Bible would put it. They were rebellious that something that should have taken like a two-week journey, right? Like put on your chanclas, uh, tighten your, 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 your robe, and let's go, right? Two weeks, we're going to be there, and, and man, we've made it. But no, what they do is they go in circles and circles, and God, uh, Moses would get frustrated, Moses, of course, would get frustrated, but then he would remember, this isn't about me, this is about God, that even when God said, I'm going to just destroy him, Moses said, I, you, you can't do that, because your name's at stake. They're going to mock you, and, and your enemies are going to say you pulled them out, but you couldn't see them through all the way. That was a servant's heart to see them all the way through. Now, Moses was a man. He wasn't perfect. We know at the end of his life, he wasn't able to enter because he gets angry and he doesn't speak to the rock, but he wants to strike the rock. But nevertheless, Moses was a servant and a good picture of a servant. And he never got tired. He never got, uh, well, he, he got tired and weary, but not to the point of giving up. Now, God proved to him, I'm with you. Why? Their sandals never wore out. Their, their clothes uh, remained unchanged. And so God was faithful. And so because of it, that helped Moses to stay faithful. But because Moses had his eyes set on God, he didn't have his eyes set on anything else. The other individuals, the other Israelites had their eyes set on everything else. Well, there's another slave servant of God that we see, and I would say the greatest one of all, and we read about him in Isaiah chapter 53, and that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the suffering servant. And in verse 11 says that he, uh, God, shall see the labor of his soul, of Jesus, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, there he says it clearly, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He's talking, of course, about salvation. But it says, he shall see the labor of his soul. So before Christ served physically on the cross, 
He served with the labor of his soul. What does that mean? It means that it began in his heart before it even manifested outside. And I would say that for us, our service to God, everything that we do, the church coming and the Bible reading, it all starts and must come first and only from our heart. And if it comes from our heart, then guess what? Individuals will show up not late, but early. They'll be consistent rather than inconsistent. Why? Because it's coming from the heart. It's my choice. I don't have to be there. I'm there because I want to. James writes to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. And of course, this equally applies to all believers that are scattered around the world. If you're familiar with the letter of Philemon, Philemon was an individual who owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. We went through that book uh, last year, and Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from Philemon, and he goes to Paul, and he says, I found the Lord. And Paul didn't, of course, Paul said, wonderful, but Paul didn't say, okay, stay with me and, and come on and let's go minister. But he actually wrote this letter to Philemon, and he said, Onesimus, son, I need you to take this back, and I need you to go back to your master, because this is not the way that we do things. And so he sends Onesimus back, and the letter says, receive him, uh, not necessarily now as a slave, but as your brother in Christ Jesus, which is now greater But it's the right thing to do. And I, I would say that a lot of individuals who are believers right now are that Onesimus. They are a runaway slave because Christ has become either too difficult or they feel that they're in bondage or they're listening to their emotions. And now they're running from Christ. And the right thing to do is to come back to God and to draw near closer to God so that God would draw closer to them. But somewhere in the life of James, we should see this same thumbprint in our very own lives as believers. What do I mean? Well, just like James, who was once in disbelief, that same thing applies to us. There was a time when we were all in disbelief, and then Christ made a special appearance in our life, the same way he specially appeared to James. And then we reach a point, hopefully, in our lives where we're happy to call him master and to remain a bond slave to him. Right? Is that what the bond slave said? I, I love my master and I want to remain with him forever. I don't want to go anywhere else. That's the heart of a Christian. I love my master God and I don't want to go anywhere else. And this, in turn, causes us to become a pillar in the body of Christ that assists in causing it to prevail. The pillars. The body of Christ needs pillars right now. And then, of course, when we take our last breath, whether it is a, a calm last breath or it is a violent last breath, okay? Whether it's calm, whether it's just a, and I'm gone. 
or whether it's violent. I mean violent maybe because they just uh, beheaded an individual. Whether it's calm or violent, the fruit is what? Everlasting life. Now, thankfully for us, we don't know persecution as James did. We don't know persecution as the first century Christians did. I've often thought about it. What would I do being put in that position? Now it's easier to say, oh yeah, I'm going to stand and I'm going I'm to lift my chin up and I'll take whatever. Well, it's a little bit easier said than done. And I think this is where we need to pray to God that our faith would not fail us, that we would be able to stand. But again, if we can't be faithful in the small things pertaining to uh, church and Bible reading, what makes us think that we would be faithful to him in a moment of death and martyrdom like this? This is why it's important to be constant in our lives with God. And this is what James is, is going to be saying throughout the whole epistle. Uh, be constant in your life. Do what you say uh, that you're going to do and who you say that you are. Let it be manifested. Again, it's not because that's how you're saved, but because you are saved. I mean, whatever profession that we are, I used to be a painter, but for me to say, yeah, I'm a painter and I'm a really good painter, well, I've never seen anything that you painted. Well, I, I was a custom painter at that. Well, I've never seen a custom car with a paint job that you painted, so as far as I'm concerned, it's nothing but hot air coming out of your mouth. And so there comes a time where we, we step up uh, or we have a desire to step up our game for the Lord. I want to be at service. And for everybody, it's different. Where, God? Where would you like to send me? And, and, and it, you know, we want it to be God, not ourselves. Because a lot of times we send ourselves places. And we do it in the name of God. Or we speak and we speak in the name of God. But this is the importance of knowing uh, the voice of God. Because, see, titles... They're flattering. It's a flattery thing, but identity, that's assurance. Knowing who you are in Christ, that's assurance. It doesn't matter that an individual is a pastor or a minister or a chaplain or a deacon or that, that whatever. But knowing your identity in Christ, that's what gives you an assurance. And when you have an assurance in Christ, that's what's going to be fuel for you to continue in this walk that we call faith. John chapter 13. Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you. Now this is a hard truth that he's saying. Most assuredly, right? Verily, verily, truly, truly. A servant or a slave is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty clear. We're not greater than Jesus. We're below him. But he says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, the key, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To know and to do are two different things. So, they go hand in hand. You know them and you do them. In Luke chapter 6, the Lord, talking to his disciples and the many followers, says, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? 
Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, here we go again, you hear them and you do them, I will show you whom he is like. This is the same concept that James brings up of uh, be doers of the word and not just hearers. And what's, what's that individual like? He said, the individual who hears these saying and does them, I'm going to liken him to the individual who builds his house on a solid foundation. Who's that solid foundation? On Jesus. The storms come, the rain, the winds, and that house stands. Why? Because it's planted, it's built on a solid foundation, but the one who builds on sand the rains come, the storms, oh, that house is going to fall, he says, and by the way, great is going to be its fall. What's the difference in all of this? Hearing and doing. Right? That's just what he got through saying. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, you're telling me I'm your master. That's what Lord is. You're telling me I'm your master, but you don't do the things that I ask of you. Now, Jesus said, my, my, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord doesn't expect a whole lot from us. He expects devotion, of course, but as husbands and wives and, or, or boyfriends, do we not expect devotion as moms and dads? I want who, whoever says they love me, I want them to be devoted to me, right? Be considerate. So it's clearly shown there. The thing is, is we have to get to the point where we allow it to go from here to drop to here and to become actions in our life. Because all the understanding that is in Scripture, all the knowledge, and I've met some individuals that have a lot of knowledge, but it stops short right there. And what it comes to is that it has to be knowledge and experience. And until we get that down, then basically we still remain slaves of the world or friends of the world. What the Bible says is that we're enemies of Christ. This is the part, right? Because see, it's easy to get fascinated with, with going uh, to a church service and saying, oh man, I, I, I felt God and I felt just like my hair standing up and, and, and th that preacher was just on fire and, and it just felt I could feel the presence of God. And then after a while, if you don't feel that, then you just think that, okay, God's not moving anymore. And after a while, you just get your bags and you move on. But the truth is, is that we can't be misled by that. We have to know that we know that we know what the word of God says, even if it doesn't feel good. Did it not feel good for James to be thrown off of a pinnacle? Or for the prophets to be slain and, and, and all the other apostles. But they did it because that's how much they believed the word of God and they stood on it. And so as we come, and, and this is, again, this is to me, I, I say this is going to be a wonderful journey through the epistle of James. But uh, I think that our prayer would be, God, allow this to, to, um, to permeate past my head into my heart, my mind, and my soul, and my emotions, and let it manifest in actions in my life that others would see that you are real in my life, that you are my master, and I serve you not because I necessarily have to or you're just going to smite me down, but it's because uh, my heart says, I love my master. And that's the whole truth behind it, right? I tell individuals, this right here represents knowledge of the word of God, 
understanding. Oh, I know what that scripture says. It says this, and I understand the history behind it, and, and I understand even the, uh, the, the Greek imperatives or the tense or, or what have you. This is all the knowledge. This is the understanding. This is um, those things right there. But tell me, it's useless. It's useless. It's just a piece of plastic, if you ask me. And then you get this right here, which is, oh, okay, it's power. This is, this is the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what we need. And so we place it. But it's still useless. Right? I'm connected to the source now. I gave my life to God. I have his spirit living within me. But, well, I see that. But I still see something that's useless. Right? Until there is this one thing, right? Because we live in a, we live in a, a dark world. The world is dark. I mean, if we could actually see in the spiritual realm, it'd probably be darker than this. We got the power, we, we got the knowledge, we have everything that we need, but we're lacking one thing. And what is that one thing? It's called applications. And when you apply the Word of God in your life, then it becomes true power. Then it becomes something tangible that you can use and you can move from there. But not only that, right? Because I, I, we know, we could say, I know the Bible. I read it three times in a year. I, oh, I understand all of that, right? But until you apply it in your life, until you apply the word of God, then it can be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path in a dark world. But we need to apply the word of God. This is power. This is what we should be after. Not goosebumps in a church service. Not for a preacher that preaches loud. Not for clever ideas or revelations that I, I just got something new. But the pure word of God. To bring it forth in a, in a form of understanding that not, I, I, okay, it doesn't matter if we understand it, but God, help me to put it in application. This is what James is saying. Be doers of the word. Do set yourself apart and be holy. Not because that's how God saves you, but because you are saved. He's redeemed you. you he's bought you with a price and therefore you belong to him. You're his property. Because how many individuals are connected to the source? There's many. How many individuals have this knowledge, but they stop short and there is no application. They don't apply it. And it's as simple as applying the word of God in our lives that it would illuminate our path. And now it leads us, oh, well, it took me so many years, right? I was always taking that wrong turn. But now that I applied the word of God, it's illuminate. Oh, I need to go straight, not turn this way. That's why I always get in toxic relationships. Or that's why I can't be, right, a, a good wife or a, or a good husband or even a good father. That's why I can't even leave my family because there is no light coming on because there's no application. Now it starts... At the top of the totem pole, first with our relationship with Christ, but as fathers, it starts there, and then it goes down the pole all the way to the bottom. But this book, it's my hope and my prayer that we would say, God, 
cause this word to become more real in my heart, that I can apply it so that you uh, would be glorified through it all and that there would be a desire to read it as we're going through it. And however long it takes is however long it takes. It doesn't matter. It's not like we're going anywhere uh, soon. And if the Lord comes back, then praise God, right? So we must come freely, freely, just like that, that bond slave in Exodus chapter 21, before the Lord, according to our love for him, and allow him to pierce or to open the ear of our understanding that we may then be able to be of service to him, both in word and in deed, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would help us, God, as we begin this journey through the epistle of James the bondservant of Christ. Father, we're not concerned with earthly physical affiliations, but with spiritual affiliations. And likewise, Father, our desire is to also be bondservants that belong to you. Bondservants that we would be of service, God, that we would be those doers and not just hearers. Father, we know that those who call upon your name, you hear them, God, you save them, you supply us with your Holy Spirit. But Father, may we never suppress any portion of your spirit by quenching it, God, with our own carnality, with our own understanding or misunderstanding, God. Help us and lead us, Father. You are the true source of thirst-quenching water for our souls. And that is what we desire. We have walked in darkness in this world. And Father, we know that it's shameful and the fruit of it is death. But God, we look toward the prize of everlasting life. And may we be of that beautiful service to you in a manner that glorifies you while we spend our time here on this earth. No matter how difficult or easy it may be, God, may we just learn how to trust you. So continue to speak to your servants, Father, as we are listening. We ask you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.